0: We are live from the great state of Tennessee, home of Davy Crockett and Kesha. I'm your host, Patrick Simpson, and this is Paranoid, a podcast where we break down conspiracy theories and separate fact from fiction. So today's story of the week, I don't even know how to describe this. It is interesting, though, for a couple of reasons. So basically... Two men rob U.S. convenience store wearing watermelon disguises. So, this is kind of obviously hard to describe without seeing the picture. But in Louisa, Virginia, I guess that's how you say it. Two men rob a convenience store and they're wearing watermelons on their head. And obviously the insides, the actual part you eat. Is all out. It's just like, the, I guess, the outside, the rinds of the watermelon. They have them on their head, and they rob these convenience stores. And basically, police in Louisiana, Louisa, Virginia, took to social media on Saturday in hopes of finding two men accused of robbing a convenience store on May 6th with watermelon rinds on their head. And basically, somehow they find the guy that did this. And that is kind of what leads... This story in itself is interesting, I guess. No, nobody was hurt, so I can talk about this. The fact that people are robbing stores with a watermelon on their head is interesting in two parts. The first part is, if you look at the picture, they look like aliens. Now, obviously, you can see they have their hands, and they're obviously humans. But their heads, the way that the... Watermelons are shaped; they actually look like aliens, and I wonder if that was that or their intention. Probably not. I'm probably the only one that even thought about that. But that was a pretty cool aspect of it. But the conspiracy theory aspect of is it? How did they find this guy? How like this happened in Nashville? A guy like with all the COVID nineteen stuff going on, people got their masks and stuff on, and they're still finding these people. Which I'm going to do a whole episode on this in itself. But it's just crazy to me. Like, how, like I mean, it's not like, I mean, there was holes cut out to see their eyes, but that was about it. Literally an entire watermelon on their head. Can't see hair. Can't see any kind of features. And they still found this guy in like a day. How do they do it? There's got to be, I forget what the movie is. There was a movie with Shia LaBeouf called, I think it was called Eagle Eye. It's got to be something like this. Like. There got to be like, I mean, we know there's cameras at street lights and stuff, but we got to be something. I don't know what it is. I've do some research, but the fact that they find people like this, just, it should just blow your mind. Like, you know, on your phone, they're listening to you because if you're like Costco somewhere and you're like, I'm in the mood for crunchy peanut butter. And then you scroll on Instagram. Oh, Well, guess what? Amazon has crunchy peanut butter. Well, how would you know that? Well, because they're always listening to you. So maybe somehow through some crazy system on their phone, they were able to track them. I don't know. But it's just crazy to me that you can rob a store with a watermelon on your head. They didn't take the watermelon off. I don't know when they took it off, but they didn't take it off immediately. And somehow they still found these guys immediately. I'm glad because justice should be served. But at the same time, it should make you wonder how exactly do they do this? Now, I guess someone technically could have snitched because I'm pretty sure these two idiots. If you're to the place of where you rob a store of watermelon on your head, you probably did tell someone. But like I said, I'm a conspiracy theorist, so I think there's some bigger eagle eye type madness going on. But I will save that for another episode. But it's pretty cool to see. I'll probably post it on my Twitter. Just for you to look at. So today we're talking about the city of Circleville, Ohio. While it currently has a population of about 13,000, in 1976, the population was about 600. The city is located about 50 miles south of Columbus, Ohio. It's a very small town with not much going on at all. Mostly known for their pumpkin festival. And even this isn't something that would be very well known outside of neighboring cities. Well, in the summer of 1976, residents began to receive strange mail, creepy, weird mail, stating that they were being watched. They knew what they were wearing, what their kids' names were, even conversations that they had. This went on for 18 years. Obviously, this had the whole town spooked. But there was one family in particular whose lives would be changed forever.
1: It's not often that we become part of a story we're investigating. But in this case, it didn't come as a total surprise. For the past 18 years, residents in and around Circleville, Ohio, have received literally thousands of bizarre letters and postcards. They represent an insidious campaign of character assassination, which some believe has left one man dead and another unfairly imprisoned.
0: So while I personally would like to know a lot more about what happened to these other families in the city, the focus of today and really of all time is on the Gilepsy family, which this story in itself is crazy enough, but I always wondered, you know, what was going on in these other homes, but that's a story for another day. Focusing on the Gilepsy family, Mary Gilepsy was a school bus driver and in the summer of 1977, A year into the mysterious letters, she gets her first one. It's from an anonymous person, no return address, no signature, no anything. All we know is that it was postmarked from Columbus. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. So if you didn't hear that super creepy reading that I just played, basically the letter accused her of having an affair with Gordon Massey, the superintendent of the school district that she worked for. He warned her that he had been watching her, even following her, and even knew that she had a husband and kids. He wanted her to end the affair. She hides the letters from her husband, though she swears she is innocent. And to be fair, she could possibly be innocent. Maybe she just didn't think that he would believe her, so she just decided to hide it anyway. That is a possibility. I'm trying to be fair. trying to give everybody a chance to prove themselves. Doesn't really matter because Ron eventually finds out himself because he receives a letter from this mysterious person telling him of the affair that his wife is having. He also says that if Ron does not tell the school board about the affair, that he would be killed. So obviously, Ron is like, what in the world is going on? And addresses his wife and she denies it, of course. They don't want any rumors to fly, which you can imagine in a town of 600, if one person finds out, then the whole city is basically going to find out so they basically keep it to themselves and i'm not in the business of victim blaming at all but this whole thing could have probably been avoided if they had went to the police and not that the police would have solved the mystery but at least they could have like had it on the radar you know watched their house you know something of the sort i mean i don't especially with the threat of actually being killed for not saying anything if you're going to make the decision to not say something then i would at least tell the police hey i don't i don't know this is this is a crazy story but i just feel like not telling anybody if you actually truly believe this person is dangerous it just doesn't make any sense but like i said i'm not victim blaming so anyway two weeks pass they're still holding on to their secret This mysterious writer gets angry and sends another letter telling Ron that if he does not tell the school board, he's going to go public on radio, television, and even put up billboards about this affair his wife is having. So they still don't go to the police, but they do have a family member with, and these names are very important to remember these names. The meeting is with Ron's sister, Karen, her husband, Paul Freshbauer, and Paul's sister. Mary also told the other bus drivers because she was suspicious that it was one of them. So they have decided to write a letter to Mary's co-worker, David Longberry, telling him that they knew it was him insisting that he stop. And this appears to work because they didn't get any new letters for several weeks. So everyone assumes that this little crazy thing is over. But eventually the attacks start coming back. But this time in the form of signs around town, saying that the, the Gillespie's 12-year-old daughter was now having an affair with the superintendent. So what does Ron do? He spends every morning taking the signs down around the neighborhood before his daughter wakes up and sees them. What? Call the police! Address this David guy in person. Something. Please, somebody do something. So anyway, this absolute madness continues until August 19th, 1977. And I guess this was the straw that broke Ron Gillespie's back. So this night, the phone rings and Ron answers. And on the other line, he hears a voice that he immediately recognizes and it just enrages him. So he hangs up, grabs his gun, kisses his daughter's goodbye, and then hops in his truck and goes to find this person. We do not know what was on the phone call or I guess who was on the phone call, we don't know what was said, but based on what we know, we have to assume it was the David Longberry guy. I I would assume, except we don't know. Unfortunately, we never get to find out because a few minutes later, Ron was found crashed at the end of the street. He had hit a tree and had died immediately. They also found that one bullet had been shot from Ron's gun, but neither the bullet nor casing was ever found. So, Sheriff of this town, Sheriff Radcliffe, initially believed that foul play was involved. We don't really get any kind of details on the crime scene, but I have to believe that it just didn't add up that, you know, he knew this neighborhood and all this. So it probably didn't add up that he just ran into this tree. But a couple of days later, the sheriff randomly changes his mind and says that Ron died from a drunk driving accident. And this just absolutely shocks his family because Ron was not a drinker at all, especially not a heavy drinker. Uh, we were told that his BAC was twice the legal limit, but this is an extremely sketchy case, and that leaves this information to skepticism because it just seems like there's a lot of blackmail and all kind of madness going on. Even crazier, the sheriff claims that they had a person of interest. But he was cleared because he passed a polygraph test. And honestly, I didn't know this until getting into the true crime world. So maybe you don't know this, but a polygraph test is not admissible in court. Polygraph test is basically useless. It doesn't even tell you if you're telling the truth or not. It just basically, I don't know the exact science behind it, but like it triggers like if you're nervous or not. So if you get asked a question, you get nervous and then you lie. So if you're confident in your lie, you can trick the polygraph pretty easily. So the fact that he just let this guy that he's suspicious of go, which we don't even know who this person is, he just lets them go because they passed a polygraph test tells me that something, something else is going on behind the scenes. So not too soon after Ron's death, the Circleville residents began getting more letters. But this time, accusing the sheriff of covering up the death of Ron. And at the same time, Mary's sister-in-law, Karen, divorced her husband, Paul, after finding out that he cheated on her. And this seems like random information, but I got to give this to you now because coming up later, it'll be important. But basically, these people were also at the meeting. So Paul cheated on Karen. And they get a divorce, but Paul gets custody of the kids and the house. So Karen is forced to go live with Mary, who is now a widow.
1: Six years after the death of Ron Gillespie, the Circleville, Ohio letter writer was still waging his or her vicious campaign. The initial targets, Ron's wife, Mary, and the superintendent of schools, eventually acknowledged a relationship. Both claimed that it had begun after the letters rather than before.
0: Oh, my God. My mind came and comprehend this. So you're telling me that you were accused of having an affair with your boss, but at that time you weren't doing it, but you decided to do it after the letter started. What in the world is going on here? My head is literally spinning in circles right now. Like this is absolute madness. I've never covered anything like this. It That's if you are to believe what she said and that their affair or their relationship didn't start till after the letter started. Obviously, if you believe that, you need to go get checked for a concussion. Obviously, what the letters were saying was correct and they were having an affair before. I mean, th- that doesn't make any sense how that's the story y'all come up with. You get a letter stating you're having an affair. So you're just like, all right. You know what? I could actually see that happening. I'm gonna go ahead and have an affair with him because the letter said to do it. I mean, oh, my lord. Anyway, so now she's actually with the superintendent and she's going on with her life. So we jump to February of 1983, and Mary is still a bus driver on her regular route that day. The mysterious rider is still leaving harassing signs about her all over the city. But for whatever reason, this one specific sign she sees this day really tips her over the edge. She goes to rip it down, but as she rips it down, she realizes that there's a box at the back attached to it, and she looks inside the box, and there's a small pistol. So long story short, it's hard to describe without seeing the visual. Basically, it's a terribly made booby trap, and it was designed in a way to where the string was connected to the gun, and the other end of the string was connected to the sign, So if she would have pulled the sign hard enough, the string would have pulled the trigger and immediately shot her. Obviously, it did not go off. I guess she didn't pull it hard enough. I don't know. But for the first time in this crazy story, she actually does go to the police. The police examine the gun and are able to get the serial number off of it. And it traces back to Paul Freshour, Mary's ex-brother-in-law. So I know this could be confusing. There's a lot of names to keep up with. But if you remember, Karen is Ron's sister and Karen and Paul had a very nasty divorce in which Paul got the kids in the house and it forced Karen to stay with Mary. So during this time, she told Mary that she was suspicious of that Paul was the one behind the letters. So this combination of information leaves the, leaves the police to bring in Paul for questioning. Their tactics are extremely sketchy as they give him one of the letters and ask him to write down the words verbatim. Now, this is not the way you're supposed to get someone to verify a handwriting match. You're just supposed to get them to write down random words and then compare it. Because if you're looking at the letter, it's like almost natural to try to write it in the same way. It's just kind of like how your brain works. And keep in mind also that Ron was not told he was a suspect. So he was just complying, thinking, I'm not sure what he was thinking, but in his mind, he was just helping out the investigation, not realizing that this whole time, everything he was doing was actually hurting himself. So because he didn't realize that he was under investigation, he had no lawyer present and because he just thought he was helping. And if he did have a lawyer present, it would have stopped this absolutely garbage testing from going on. So with him basically being blindsided, the sheriff charges Paul with the attempted murder of Mary Galebsi. So on October 24th of 1983, Paul goes to trial. He was in he actually wasn't charged for writing any of the letters. But yet despite this, the letters were still able to be used as evidence against him, which makes absolutely no sense. A handwriting expert told the jury that the handwriting in the letters matched Paul but the experts did not know the garbage methods that they had used to get him to copy this information. And although Paul did not work on the day that the booby trap was made, he had a very solid alibi for all of his activities this day. But apparently that did not matter to the court because he was convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to seven to 25 years in prison. So case closed, solved. We can all go back to watching the NBA playoff bubble, right? Not so fast. Right when everyone was starting to feel safe, the letters still continued, And not only that, they were starting to grow. And keep in mind, this was not just Mary being tortured by these letters. Everyone in the city was receiving these creepy, very specific letters. And I say not everyone, but a lot of people. There was no way Paul could be mailing out this much volume of letters from prison without anybody noticing. So what they do, just to double check, is they put Paul in solitary confinement and do not allow him to send or receive any mail.
1: Still, the letters continue. All of them were postmarked Columbus, even though Paul was imprisoned in Lima, Ohio, 200 miles away.
0: So that is when things start to get even weirder because Paul receives a letter himself. Now, I won't read the entire thing. You can find it pretty easily online if you really want to read the whole thing. But basically, it sounds like some letter from the Joker stating that he's never going to get out of jail, that they framed them. And at the end, it says like, ha ha. It's pretty creepy letter, pretty cryptic letter. Some just overall just really creepy stuff. And no, he did not send a letter to himself because it was also postmarked from Columbus. And as we just heard, he was about 250 miles away from Columbus. So despite all this overwhelming evidence and the fact that Paul was actually a really good person in prison, his parole was rejected because these letters were still being sent out, even though there's pretty much tons of proof proving that he did not send the letters. Because they were all postmarked from Columbus, where he was not at. But yet these idiots in charge somehow still keep him in prison. Finally, in May of 1994, Paul was paroled after 10 years in prison. He swore that he was innocent the entire time, and he continued to swear his innocence until his death in 2012. And just in case you were wondering, all the letters did stop in the city in 1994 after he was released. That was a lot of information. It's a lot to dissect. So I'm going to try to break this down for you into different type of theories, and you can decide for yourself what happened. So theory number one is that Paul actually did do it. Now, while this theory is absolutely insane, the letters did stop in 1994 when he was released. He technically could have hired someone to keep sending the letters while he was in jail. But once again, it still makes absolutely no sense. Why did he even want to torture his sister-in-law in the first place? And why did he want to torture other people in the town? And how did he know so much about all these people in the city? And while I know motive is not always needed, people do do stuff on a whim and just for no reason... I've watched his videos, I've seen him talk, and I honestly just find it hard to believe it was him. And the other theories will show you that it probably wasn't him. So theory two is that David Longberry did do it. And for reference, he was Mary's coworker and was upset because he wanted Mary, but she turned him down and started a relationship with the superintendent instead. And it made him bitter. And it makes sense because someone in the school system would probably be the first one to find out about this affair. Like I said, David was in the school system. Ron, the husband, knew that David was writing the letters and he was the one that called him on the night that he died, is what you can assume under this theory. What happened that night? Did he really die on the way there or did he run into David along the way and that is why the one bullet was shot? That detail honestly doesn't matter as much. But it is important to note that David assaulted an 11-year-old girl in 1999 and became a fugitive from the law, and he has never been seen since. He's presumed dead, but we have no proof that he is dead. He ran away, got away, and was never seen again. So we got a pretty strong case against David here. And we go to number three, which is Karen ron's sister and paul's ex-wife we can assume that maybe she had seen mary cheating one night and wanted to send anonymous letters to scare her and stop her from cheating on her brother because maybe she thought her brother wouldn't believe it or she was too scared to go tell him in person so she did these crazy letters to try to get her her brother's wife to stop cheating Now, while this theory may seem a little far-fetched, we do find out that Karen is actually connected to the booby trap. Another bus driver had stated that they spotted a yellow El Camino car parked by the booby trap 22 minutes before Mary had actually passed it. The man outside the car did not fit Paul's description at all, but it did fit the description of Karen's boyfriend and now husband who owned the yellow El Camino at that time. Now, how many yellow El Camino's were there in a city of 600? I would assume not many, especially in Ohio. I mean, I don't know. The crazy thing is this information was given to the police at the time, and they just brushed it off because they thought they already had their man. So they weren't really taking any new leads seriously at the time. So if they would have looked into this, he never would have been in prison in the first place. And then lastly, there's my theory. And I am a firm believer in a combination of number two and number three. I believe that David, the jealous guy, was the original sender of the letters and that he was really doing it out of jealousy. Then after Paul and Karen's divorce, she took advantage of all the chaos going on and used this time to frame her ex-husband. So she took his gun And with the help of her boyfriend, now husband, planted it there to frame him. Now, you ready for the last part? Mary was in on it. Now, keep in mind, these posters were all around town constantly for three years. But on this random day, on the way to work to go pick up kids, this was the day she decided to go rip one off. She conveniently chose the one that was booby trapped. No, sir. No, sir. I'm not buying it at all. Remember, Mary was living with Karen at the time and Karen was feeding her this garbage about Paul. Remember, he cheated. He got the house. He got the kids. So it makes sense that she decided to help frame Paul and get payback for his cheating. And also believe that that gun was never actually going to go off and she knew that it makes sense. Like it was in there. If you see the picture, I, it just looked like it was like, it. I don't think it was ever going to go off. Like she knew it was there. It probably wasn't even loaded. We don't even find out that information. That would be huge. Was the gun even loaded? I don't know. We don't find that out, but this theory makes complete in total sense to me, but like I said, I tell you what I believe, and then I'll let you do your own thing and figure out what you want to believe. But there is the final elephant in the room, the fact that they were all postmarked from Columbus, which is 50 miles away. So whether it was David, Mary, or whoever, this person had to stop what they were doing in their daily life to drive up there just to throw hundreds of mail envelopes into the box and it's obviously definitely possible but it does leave open the very small chance that the true criminal is still out there not even under the radar just living life patiently waiting to terrorize the city again that is it for the circleville letters really hope you enjoyed this episode if so you can subscribe, hopefully, and the review really helps me get seen, helps grow this community. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Patrick Simpson and on Instagram at ParanoidWithPatrick. Always looking for more conversation. Really enjoy the DMs and messages that you send me of your theories and ideas for the podcast. I'm open to everything. A lot of stuff that I cover is from suggestions. You know, I'm here for you, to have fun with you, so if you feel like there's something we need to talk about we're going to talk about it I'm trying to keep it more diverse started out more aliens ufos kind of been more conspiracy unsolved mysteries lately been trying to shift back more into the government realm next week probably so i'm just trying to get a gauge on what you like i don't want to just talk about what i like i want to talk about what you like so like i said hit me up on the social medias anything you want me to cover what you did like what you didn't like don't be afraid i don't like criticism want to get better at this feel like i'm getting better but it's still a long way to go and i don't want to do this without your input so as always we'll be back next monday with a very new episode my name is patrick simpson and this is